Welcome to 20 Not Something, the podcast for 20-somethings who haven't quite figured out what their something is yet. Each week, I'll be speaking to a different guest about their experiences of this messy decade to reassure you that everything turns out all right in the end. Because doing something in your 20s can actually mean doing anything that makes you happy. Today, I am joined by psychotherapist and author Emma Reed Terrell. Emma's early 20s saw her graduate from Cambridge University and swept straight into a grad job at Protka and Gamble, where she worked in sales and marketing for the best part of 10 years. Her 20s, as she recalls, were all about trying and mostly failing to find her tribe while frequently feeling flattened by imposter syndrome. Riddled with people-pleasing tendencies, Emma found herself working in a job that didn't fulfil her and continuously tried to both impress socially and in the tricky corporate climate before reaching the realisation that this was not the path for her. It was actually her first therapy experience at age 23 that sparked in Emma a journey of self-awareness and led her to retrain over the course of her 20s to become a therapist herself at 29. And I think I speak on behalf of all of her readers and clients when I say, thank God that she did. Emma is now a practicing psychotherapist and as well as being director of the Therapy Loft has also this year published the must-read guide which will transform the way you live, please yourself. As well as having potentially the best name ever, Emma is a wonderful (laughs) writer, an anecdote queen and the friend we all need to remind us that you can choose to continue to try to be liked by everyone or you could aim to be unconditionally accepted by some. Her book has certainly changed my life for the better and I have no doubt it will do the same for you. Emma Terrell, Terrell, God, I can't even speak. I'm so flustered. <laughs> Welcome to 20 or something. Oh, thank you, Emma. That was such a lovely intro. I went from feeling quite sorry for her, the girl you were describing at the beginning, to actually feeling like, oh, yes, it did get better. <laughs> <laughs> It definitely did. And I want to thank mm. you for coming out on as well. And I apologize for cornering you at the Barbican. Because I, no, like, I love oh, that. I recognize her from the book. I'm just gonna go that over was amazing. it. Amazing. <laughs> it was the most unme thing ever. I'm normally such like okay. a, oh no, I won't, I won't do it, I won't ask. But yeah, thank okay. you for honoring amazing. my I like to feel that that was kind of on brand with the book. Yeah. You just thought, you know, what the hell? Fuck it. <laughs> yeah. yeah well so thank you for being here um this mini series is all about you know exploring your 20s but also honing in on this idea of destination addiction and what do all the where's and the there's in life actually mean like what are we all striving for and so with that in mind I wanted to ask you when you were looking into your 20s yeah did you have an idea of what you wanted to be at the end or where you wanted to go I think I did I mean I think I kind of I I felt very much like I was on a conveyor belt probably from the age of about 14 but that was just then I was executing one set of tasks after another and kind of working my way through the institution that is school and then I went to uni and at that point I just thought I wanted to kind of complete that task and I think at that point it looked like oh I'm going to go into maybe law or I'm going to go into something in a kind of business context and for me that just seems like what you did and particularly the school I went to and I loved my school but the the kind of focus on core subjects was 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 pretty intense so the idea that you would go off piste at all just wasn't really countenanced so for me it was that point of going ah law will do so I actually started doing a law degree and a year into my law degree kind of just fell over with stress and moved to English which was always my passion kind of you know, when I was younger. So that was the first step off the conveyor belt, if you like. But I think I had an idea that I was just going to 
tick the box of being a sort of successful corporate businesswoman because mm. why not? Why not? I was exactly the same. When I left six <laughs> months, I had this idea of this woman walking down the street holding her Starbucks coffee with heels right. and a, like a business yeah. suit. I was like, oh, yes. that will be me one day. And actually, you get to that point and it's like, oh, this is pretty yeah. horrendous. Starbucks I mean, only goes so far. I mean, I love Starbucks, <laughs> but it, it can't do it all. <laughs> well, in your notes to me, when you were talking about the sort of like busy corporate climate, you said that you did mm-hmm. find that you people please your way through it. And to the extent where you sort of lost your integrity. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that was a really kind of, looking back, I just didn't even know that about myself at the time. So I had a a Spanish teacher, Mr. Jones, he was great. And he would say to me, Emma, you'll do fine because you can talk your way out of a paper bag. And I didn't really understand what that meant at the time. But I, looking back, I can understand what he was basically saying was I could blag it. And I think the blagging it and the people pleasing went hand in hand and basically meant that I was somebody who could just adapt chameleon-like to whatever the environment demanded of me and make it work and sort of wing it a bit. So I did this whole piece of where I kind of used my people-pleasing like a superpower and worked in an environment where I was in sales and, you know, pleasing customers and colleagues and bosses that was all seemingly going in my favor until it kind of stopped and what happened when it stopped well when it stopped it just it just sort of crumbled actually well literally there was a crumple because there was a a a point I remember I was working with Procter and Gamble and again a fantastic company great people fantastic opportunities but looking back not for me not for me then in a way actually I'd love to go back and do it now because Mm. I'm such a different person but back then I was the one who I hadn't taken a gap year it didn't occur to me to take time out after university so I'd just gone straight in to pretending to be an adult and I think at 21 that was exactly what I was doing you know like you said heels clean tights every day and a Starbucks and that was me adulting And really that day came when I was driving down the A3 to get to work and I just found myself just crying and almost Mm. kind of to the point where I had to pull over because I was like, this is ridiculous. Why am I so upset? What am I so anxious about? And it had kind of come to the point where a part of me knew I was deeply unfulfilled by selling smelly water in a bottle because that's what I did. I was in the perfume team. And another part of me wished that I wasn't. I wished that I could be, at least as I understood it then, like all the others. Mm-hmm. I just wished that I could find a way to have the confidence and the self-belief to to go for it and to, to be that person I was kind of aspiring to become. And in that moment, I had this kind of, well, physical crumple because I crashed the car and uh, emotional crumple because at that point, I just thought this has to stop. Something has mm-hmm. to give here. You know, when I went into work, of course, the the irony being that the only reason I was giving myself permission to then ask for help and actually go home was because I'd been in this car crash, which was fine. Everybody was fine. But really what I needed was someone to kind of notice at that point, you're not okay, are you? And I had a lovely, um, she wasn't my manager, but she was lovely and she worked in our department. And she said, have you ever tried the employee assistance program? It's like, no, what's that? It's like, what's this number you call and you can just talk to somebody? So I ended up talking and Chloe put me in her office and she said just just call this number and and have a chat and see if they can help you and of course the first thing they said quite rightly was I think you need to go home 
Mm. And it was such a lovely permission to get to not have to kind of please my way through it and make sure everyone else was okay and just keep winging it and keep lagging it. But to actually say, oh, yeah, do you know what? I really, I really do want to go home. Yeah. <laughs> so I did. As it turned out, I actually never went back to that job. But um, it was a really good turning point for me because it was the bit at which I said, I think I need to be a bit more true to myself and what mm. I want. Sure. I mean, I can massively relate to that as well. I think a lot of people can when you're going through that. It's it's the pressure, isn't it? When you're that young and everyone's like, right, get out of uni, get straight into this job. Yeah. It doesn't matter what it is, but you need to earn some money because you're in a fuckload of debt yeah, and like, absolutely. just come on, get with the program. So yes. yeah, it's really tricky. I think one yeah. thing that stood out as well to, uh, with your 20s journey was that obviously at, at 29, 30, you changed careers completely. Yeah. And I really, I wanted to raise it because I think it's, it's such a common thing to happen. Um, and I was reading up on this thing called sunk cost fallacy, which is this mm. tendency where we follow through on an endeavor because we've invested yeah. so much time and effort into it. And like then feel guilty if we let that go because of all of the yeah. time and the money and the process. And I was curious as to whether when you then changed to move towards therapy and working as a psychotherapist, whether you had that guilt or, oh, it's too late or what a waste yeah. of time. Yeah. I think one of the things that actually I feel really fortunate about is that because, well, the way that therapy works is typically it's, it's post-grad, typically it's a bit later in life. As it was, I was really young in my cohort of trainees but you start with an introductory course I mean this began as far from being a career change this began as a one-day workshop at the Gestalt Centre in London you know talking about different types of counselling skills and because it was about personal development and self-awareness I just started doing it because I was interested I just started doing it because actually I had a counselling experience myself and came away from it with some insight but with the biggest the biggest thought being how the fuck does anyone get through life without therapy was actually where I came to at that point. So for me, it then became, right, I'm just going to being a kind of reforming people pleaser, but still very much finding myself drawn to take care of others. I ended up kind of, yeah, I'll do this as personal development, but look, what a surprise here. I am actually trying to do it for other people as well. Mm. I'm going to get even better at pleasing other people because I'm going to have a qualification in how to do it. It's sort of how I understood it. But I think bit by bit by bit, I just ended up doing, you know, short courses and then an introductory and then a certificate and then a diploma and then a degree and then a postgrad. And all of those things ended up in me changing career. I'm not sure that at any particular point I said, this is what I want to do for a living. Mm. It just came to a point where actually it coincided with me leaving a job and uh, getting married and trying for a baby and stuff like that, that kind of meant that it was a bit more organic but so many people talk to me about it or will dm me about you know how to do it how to change careers and because it's such a massive step isn't it to like you said sunk and lost just cash in at that point and say i'll start again yeah and with it you know it comes with the pay cut and you know the change of everything really you have to change yeah. your entire life i had a um a uh, professional cricketer on in the last season called Phoebe and she worked at like in like you busy corporate climate and then at 29 yeah. decided no do you know what I'm going to be a professional cricketer move back in with mum you know and she was yeah. like it was it was horrendous because I felt like I didn't have any control and yet I was following something that I was so passionate about it didn't matter in the way I thought it would um, yeah and that's so key isn't it because sometimes we can we can read the situation wrongly 
and think we've gone back to being a beginner, which of course we haven't because all of that life experience, all of those transferable skills have come with us. We might not know yet how we're going to utilize them, but they'll be there. And yes, we've gone back to the beginning in some respects, but it's almost like a new chapter. It's not the beginning of everything. Mm. It's that sense of kind of actually this is evolution. And I think to your point about, I love that idea of sunken loss. You know, I think about that quite a lot with clients because some clients will talk to me about the fact that, you know, I've been in this relationship for so long and I've worked so hard at it and we've been through all this stuff together. And so shouldn't we, oughtn't we carry on or find some way or settle Mm. with this? And I think it's really important for us to notice that we are allowed to evolve and we are allowed to change. And it doesn't mean what's gone before is a waste. And I put some of that down to kind of, I don't know how you how you grew up, but when I was a kid, I just wanted to kind of find my thing and I couldn't find my thing. It's like I wanted to be a gymnast, but I was a bit shit that. And I wanted to, oh, I'll try like dance, but that didn't really work. And then I'll try a musical instrument. Nah, not for me. And I had this idea, this self-image that I was a kind of a quitter. Mm. And I look back now so much more compassionately towards that kind of seven-year-old girl who is just having a go and trying stuff out. And I think that's the bit that sometimes we maybe need to go back and give ourselves permission to do is to kind of try things and let things begin and let them end so that we can be somewhere else, do something else. So, so true. I'm literally here like <laughs> nodding like, yes, that's like, <laughs> it is. And when we go into, especially, you know, in any environment, in a new relationship, in a new job, we feel like there's this pressure to perform and to take everything that we've learned and really just like run with it and be the best. And actually sometimes yeah. it's, kind of fun not being the best and just seeing how yeah. it goes yeah, yeah for sure one thing will come on to your book later but I it just reminded oh. me of that um there's I think we spend a huge part of our 20s feeling quite frustrated I certainly have mm-hmm. you know financially mm-hmm. socially and one thing that struck me in your book was it was, I think it was towards the end and you said that anger is only ever supposed to signal change. And I found it fascinating. So I was like, wait, mm-hmm. hold on a minute. No. Yeah. Anger is that thing that you feel that you shouldn't feel yeah. because it's really bad. Yeah. Yes. And it was just so amazing. And I really wanted to talk to you about it. So mm. can you just like explain that for, for the listeners? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's something I feel so passionately about. And I love the way you use the word frustration because it's we're all right. We're allowed to be frustrated, right? We're told yeah. that's okay. You can be frustrated. You're not angry though, are you? Because you're going to have to have a really watertight reason why you're angry and you're going to have to kind of then stop being angry very quickly. That somehow, you know, I'm kind of making light of it, but somehow that's the societal message we get. You can be, you can be frustrated. There could be friction, but there can't actually be anger. And I mean, to a certain extent, this this isn't gendered because I experience it. I experience it everywhere. But certainly I know that I work with a lot of a lot of grown up little girl, as in the little girls they were told to be who've grown up and still are trying to not be angry, but maybe they're allowed to cry or, you know, let's take it the other way. And maybe there are lots of little boys growing up who are not allowed to cry, but they can, you know, they can shout and punch and 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 be kind of as people describe it boisterous and I think Mm. there's that kind of recognition that sometimes we need to look back and and get curious about what messages did I get about anger so many of us will have got some if we can kind of just unpack it a bit further 
And I see it manifest in all these different ways. Frustration's one, you know, as soon as someone says, I feel really frustrated, I find myself saying, oh, cool. Uh, what might you be angry about? Mm. Equally, if someone says to me they're bored, if someone says to me they're tired, that's a kind of catnip for me to start asking about anger. Mm. Particularly bored, you know, the kid at the back of the class who was bored, it wasn't that they were messing about for no reason, it's that their needs weren't being met. And that's what I want I want my my clients to understand is that anger is the feeling we get. It's a signal to tell us our needs aren't being met, mm. maybe by the outside world, but maybe by us. And maybe there's a change that we need to make. And it's only when we make the change that that feeling goes away. Mm. Do you think in that car when you were driving to work, was that anger when you were crying? That's such a good question. It's such a good question. I think it was a whole host of things there. I think one of the things I was doing was pre-grieving the fact that I knew this hadn't worked and that this was going to be over, that this was kind of coming to an end. I think I was angry with the world at that point. But of course, I came to understand actually it was it was me that was giving up my agency by holding myself these outdated conditions of worth that I had never subscribed to. Mm. I think I was scared and all of this is about recognizing those feelings we get. And, you know, let's take something that we hear a lot about now, like anxiety. I think it's about taking a moment to stop and say, let's, let's just consider that anxiety as real as that feels mm. is often a cover up feeling for something underneath, like anger, like scare, like sad. You know, so in the same way, if someone says to me, I feel really anxious, I'll say, Listen, if you weren't feeling anxious right now, what do you think you might be feeling? If this wasn't anxiety, what do you think you might be feeling? And so many people say, fucking livid, you know, or <laughs> desperately sad or gutted mm. or terrified. But until we get there, we can't actually resolve it. Mm. And it's admitting to that as well. Like I am a very conflict avoidant person, always have been. I love a good debate. And I, if, I, if I have an opinion on something, I will sit there and, and discuss it. But as soon yeah. as I feel like we're heading towards anger or argument, I go all floppy. I'm like, oh no, actually, don't worry about it. It's fine. And yeah. I'm curious as to whether in your experience, most people pleasers are conflict avoidant. I think there is a... I mean, there are these different types of people pleasers that I talk about, but one of them that I call the pacifier, absolutely. Hooray! <laughs> Hi, pacifier. Oh, hello. Hi, I'm really glad you clocked that because I wanted to come back to something you just said as well, which is that you said that when it starts to head down that conflict line, you go floppy and you'll go, mm. never mind, don't worry about it. Yeah. I, in that moment. And of course, what we also have to account for is that maybe that night when you go to bed and you're lying there trying to get to sleep or maybe the next morning when you're having a shower or you're walking to work or wherever you're going that anger is there it's still there going I wish I'd said this and I can't believe I did that and that's so annoying and of course at that point the feeling is redundant because we can't or at least we believe we can't make a change at that point mm -hmm. and I think that's what often happens with the pacifier they want to keep the peace because that's what they believe is going to keep them safe However, when we can't pacify our way out of a situation, sometimes we end up in that resistor space. So that's another profile I talk about in the book. And that's the person who who literally says, fuck it then. I can't be bothered anymore. They can, and it does affect them. But because they can't win, they don't want to play. 
Mm. So pacifiers and resistors, they often kind of end up in this flip-flop situation where they kind of really want everyone to be happy. And then when that doesn't work, they have to kind of find a way to not give a fuck. Mm. That actually reminds me of my favourite quote from the whole book, which is, um, oh, where was it? I made a note of it. (laughs) Oh, yeah, this is it. It was just my favourite thing and I related to it so much. It says, um, it seemed I knew how to give too many fucks or no fucks at all, but I struggled to find a moderate fuck distribution. Yes. Like the bell curve of fucks. How we find that. (laughs) And it's interesting because that quote was actually you talking about um working in your early twenties. And I'm curious as to whether now you feel like you have a better fuck distribution. I do have a better fuck distribution, I'm happy to say. I think I still get hooked though, you know, and there are times when actually what's really interesting is it's it's not so much the content of what it is that's hooked me. So I don't know, say for instance, quite often now it'd be with my kids because my children are seven and 10. And so they're going through situations that I can now remember. That sounds weird. I know, but kind of when they were younger, I don't really remember those situations. They were just happening to the kids. And I was, you know, I was empathizing with what they were going through. But now when they come home from school and someone said something mean or they didn't get something that they wanted to do or it kind of went a bit wrong, I am so in it with them. I kind of really find myself merging. And that's a kind of example of where I could end up giving too many fucks because Mm -hmm. I have to remember this is actually not helpful to them or me if I kind of, you know, stomp it in my size sevens and try and put the world's rights for them (laughs) as much as I would love to. But in that moment, what I also have to not do is not give any fucks, right? Because I am their parent and I have to make sure that I don't go, well, you know, listen, that's life. Sucks to be you. Mm. What I have to do is find a way to actually give the appropriate, moderate distribution of fucks and do what's useful and appropriate. And although it's not a very exciting word, appropriate is the kind of star I sail by. It's Mm. that sense of what's right and fit for purpose in this moment. And that's about balance. And sometimes it's one end of the scale and sometimes it's the other, but it's still about being appropriate. Mm. That is such an interesting word. Yeah, appropriate. I think that I never use, I'm, I'm very similar in the sense that I definitely give, I care way, way too much about some things and then not enough yeah. about certain things I should care about. And it's a really tricky thing to, to moderate because like you said, I'll go to bed sometimes and I'll be thinking of everything in my head, which is just, that makes me go insane. (laughs) I do care. I really care. Um, And especially I think when it comes to careers, because it's so, it's so ingrained in us that our job defines us. I know everyone says like, your job doesn't define you. It's not about, but all of the narrative around that whole ethos of like life, you know, you want to buy a house. Okay. You need a job. Oh, you yeah. want to go and drink with your friends? Okay, you need a job to do that. Yeah. You know, it's always about that. And so giving the right number of fucks when it comes to work, I find really yeah. tough to balance. Yeah, I think it is really tough because sure, it doesn't define us, but until we know what does, it's a very visible hook to hang our identity mm. on. Mm, for sure. And there is something I'm actually still trying to get my head around with people pleasing, which I'm excited go to ask it. you about. So <laughs> as you know, I'm a pacifier. Yes. So I don't want to displease others. I'm totally obsessed with how people view me. And my opinion of me is often vastly shaped on how others perceive me. 
Yeah. And I've settled with that and I'm like, okay, that's probably something that needs to a little, little bit of work. But my conundrum is how do I know that I am being a good and nice and honest person, which is all I really want to be in the world. If somebody doesn't affirm that to me, like if I'm walking yeah. down the street and I'm like, oh, I'm the best person ever. And then all my friends come up to me and are like, Emma, you're such a bitch. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Something's gone wrong here. Yes. So how do you What a great question. That? Yeah. I mean, that's a really tricky one because it's where I have a kind of a, an un, a slightly, a slightly unpopular answer, I think, which is, you know, we kind of hope, right, that we can find a way to reassure ourselves about some stuff and we're going to feel okay. You're going to walk down the street. And I think this is where people pleasers can come unstuck sometimes because they walk down the street and they feel okay about something. And then someone else says to them, you're a wanker. And at that moment, that becomes the truth. And in that moment, what a people pleaser might accidentally look for is some reassurance from the world. You know, so they might kind of Google people pleasing or kind of look for some affirmations on Instagram or kind of curate their feed so that what they start seeing is reassurance that they're okay. Mm. You know, you're not a wanker. That's kind of what we're looking for in that moment. The thing is, you might be a bit of a wanker sometimes. And that's also okay too, Mm. because this is actually about accountability. This is about understanding that maybe there is a seed of truth if your friends are saying actually Emma you're a bitch and you think you're the best thing since sliced bread maybe there's a seed of truth in that that a grain that you could actually take and and hold on to if only if you're allowed to not swallow whole the rest of it because mm. that's where people pleasers come unstuck it's either your opinion or my opinion and I haven't been taught yet that I can I can kind of metabolize what you say about me and fish out bits that are useful and discard the bits that are about the other person Mm. or that we have evidence aren't true. So we haven't been given that sense of freedom to be self-selecting and discerning about other people's opinions. Mm. And also we sometimes find ourselves going to the wrong people for those opinions, you know? So it's this whole adage of, if I wouldn't ask you for advice, why would I heed your opinion? You know, are you on my list of people who I would go to for advice? And if you are, then, yeah, actually, that seed of truth probably got something to it. But or and I'm also really passionate about tuning into your own moral compass, which is the bit of you that can go. Yeah, some things about what I did today were great. And, you know, to use your words, good and nice. But other things less so. Mm. And am I OK with that? And if I'm OK with that, awesome. I'm certainly okay with that. You know, I don't live my life trying to be good and nice. I think that's a kind of a hangover of some conditioning in the past. But I do try and live my life being real and considerate Mm. of others and of myself. Mm. Wow. That's, yeah, I (laughs) I see that now. I do. I think I just don't have the um, confidence in my own knowledge of who I am to know whether, who like, the things that I do are yeah I just uh, I get so hot up on what other people think but I think that who we are it it matters like it you know life is about the 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 connections and the interactions that you have with others right without that you don't really live in my opinion Mm. I think it's like discerning those connections with who you are in yourself yeah 
Yeah. And maybe, maybe allowing some of those realities to shape the kinds of connections you make going forwards. Because mm. ultimately, if you do think that you're a decent person and you're okay, and your friends think you're a bitch, <laughs> it's also quite possible that that says more about the relationship they have with themselves. Yeah. However, acknowledging that might mean you have to update your friends. And of course, mm. that conflict thing that you're not up for that's going to be there Mm. you know so until we're okay being angry because we're going to know how to make a change and we're okay being different and not having others agree with us Mm. we're going to end up having to fall in line and and maybe go with the the majority opinion the other thing that I think you were talking about is something really interesting about the difference between internal and external motivation and really what that means is if I'm internally motivated if I think I've done something well then I've done it well. And if you, if I think I've done something badly, then I've done it badly. And it's my opinion. It's, it's me that matters, whether or not you tell me something different. If you're externally motivated, if I tell you you've done something well, then you've done it well. And if I tell you you've done it shit, then you've done it shit. Mm. What you think doesn't matter. And people pleasers are often quite externally motivated. So they get that data, that input from their environment. And this is where it links to imposter syndrome. They have this wildly inaccurate view of themselves and their own achievements. Because it's kind of, they're only as good as their last game. Mm. Oh my gosh, I feel so selfish. It's like a therapy session for me. Right, let's round it back to you. (laughs) I can't help it. I'm just like, this is what I love. No, I love it. Thank you. It's free as well. What a treat. Um, I was going to round it back to you when you were talking about connections, because in your note to me, you said um, mm. you were talking about relationships and mm. um, you said that in your 20s, a lot of the relationships were, were built on what you thought they wanted you to be rather than who you actually were. And I think it's yeah. such an, um, a, a great point to raise. Um, and I'm curious as to whether in terms of talking about like the where's and the there's in life, did you have this mm. ideal relationship platform that you were aiming for? And, in, and then so acted in a way to correspond to that goal or was it something different? Yeah, well, that's really interesting. I think kind of looking at it, I was definitely someone who wanted, I was a bit of a pacifier and a bit of a resistor. So I both wanted to kind of follow the crowd and just go with this flow of people who were finding relationships and, you know, towards the late 20s, settling down and starting to kind of think about houses and you know, kids and stuff. But there was also a part of me that was extremely independent and self-sufficient. And I didn't want to fall in with the kind of this maelstrom of of the way we had to date. That was not my thing at all. So when I actually look back at my 20s, really what happened in my relationships was I ended up converting friends into boyfriends. Mm. And it wasn't conscious. It was just the people who I enjoyed spending the time with were people who I ended up dating ostensibly and settling down with. And for me, it was very much a series of monogamous relationships throughout my 20s. And in many ways, my regrets over that are, I wish I'd left them as friends because as a result of us crossing that line and and becoming more than friends, we lost the friendship. And, you know, in certain situations, I'd love to have that friendship back. Mm. There is something about recognising that, I don't know, was I looking for... Was I looking for a boyfriend? Maybe, but I think I was just looking for a kind of a best friend. And somehow that's what those relationships became. 
that's so interesting because I was I was on a podcast the other day and the the girl who I, was interviewing me was like, oh, how do you define love? And yeah. I said, oh, love is just sex with your best friend. <laughs> <laughs> so I totally get why. I, I actually personally haven't been friends first with any of in any mm. of my relationships, but I think that there is such a standing for that because yeah. it it must be like the most powerful thing to like have someone who's your best friend and then it's like oh my god I feel all these feelings on another yes. level for you now. Absolutely, exactly that, and I think that's the thing, isn't it? It gets a bit messy though when you then comes the end of those relationships because mm. you know you're kind of like undoing all of those feelings including those original ones that were just about connection Mm. can you remember a point where you realized that you weren't maybe being truly authentic and then tried to backtrack a bit yeah it's funny really because I think part of it was about when I look back you know I went into Procter & Gamble and I was in marketing and sales and I think I just honed those skills so I would Mm. start relationships kind of marketing myself as what does this person want? Which of those attributes have I got or could I potentially polish up? And unconsciously, that's what I would lead with. And quite often it was a part of me that is real, which is about being, as I said, independent and quite self-sufficient and knowing my own mind. However, sometimes I think I would kind of almost pivot on that and become, I don't know, like challenging or confronting or different, you know, and I would doing things that maybe my peers weren't doing and that would seem to attract a certain type of guy that wanted to go out with someone who seemed kind of brave and bolshy and mm. and sweary and sarky and drank pints of tetleys and <laughs> you know I still like a pint of tetleys however it ended up that I was almost kind of distilling myself into this like this person mm. and I think when I kind of got to a point where maybe I realized, ah, oh, so I can't really be vulnerable in this relationship. I can't actually really be sensitive because that's not what we've built it on. Mm. Then that kind of wobbles. Yeah, so true. And it's so like what you said about marketing yourself. I mean, it's the same with like Instagram and there's a great chapter in your book, sure. obviously about online people pleasing, but especially yeah. dating apps. It's like, you put your best, best, best self on your dating profiles. I say to my friends, like, am I, am I a catfish? Am I, is this, is this me? <laughs> and then, and then you go on these dates and it's like, no wonder they're crap because you've both put these perfect examples of who you yes. are and actually you meet and it's like, okay, well, we're both not really who you said we are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, I know. I mean, I do count myself really lucky, but actually it wasn't a thing online dating just hadn't really begun when I was in my 20s and I think I would have found it so challenging to have to go through that kind of how real should I be and how real are they going to be and Mm. I mean I was I was looking at this feed the other day and it was kind of the funniest bumble screenshots of the first conversations people had ever had (laughs) and I love it was honestly I was howling because one of them said I think the the girl wrote hi and then whoever responded wrote I just need you to know I'm not looking for a committed relationship <laughs> and and then literally the girl reply was like wow so hi was too much <laughs> <laughs> kind of like oh man but I just yeah 
That's so that funny. sounds tough. <laughs> you know what? It has its it has its ups and downs. Also, want to clarify? I'm not like a total catfish. I don't edit all my photos. But oh, <laughs> people listening no. are gonna be like, "Oh my god, who is she?" Well, there you go. There's me caring about what other people think again. Right? So, exactly. Well, it's there you go. <laughs> Before we move on to play the game, I just wanted to ask you one final question about sort of this sure. shift now from moving from your twenties into your thirties and yeah. beyond. What do you think, what are the main predominant shifts that you felt comparatively to Emma in her early 20s? Yeah. Oh, oh wow. That's, so let's, let's see. I'm 41 now and I would say until, until now, my best year was when I was 17. You know, I feel like I was absolutely nailing it when I was 17. <laughs> I think 20s became really really rocky and I wouldn't go back to my 20s for any money Mm -hmm. because so much of it was just about falling over and trying really hard but coming up against these blocks and not understanding them and not seeing that I was often the common denominator in the things that I was up against but not having that space to kind of almost learn about myself almost having given up some of the the care that we might receive when we're younger, we would hope to receive when we're younger and trying to just do it all by myself. So the 20s for me felt like trying to do it all by myself whilst also being a great friend, a great girlfriend, you know, a great employee and everything else in between. And there was just too much. I was just trying too hard. The thing that shifted really in my 30s was that I had kids Mm. and that created just whether I wanted it or not, you know, a kind of a hard stop to some of the stuff that had been preoccupying me. I mean, it brought a whole host of other stuff, but I think it was, it was a real interruption to some of my old processes. And then now, you know, my oldest is nearly 11. I really feel that I've kind of come out of a a decade of doing stuff for other people. Not that that was, was my choice. And I'm really fortunate to to have that choice but now I have this kind of glimpse of oh I think I'm gonna go back to being 17 again Mm. oh my gosh I love that returning to a 17 year old (laughs) oh wow yeah we can all do that I'm up for that I'm gonna do that today right 17 do Do it (laughs) maybe with maybe with less um WKDs yeah maybe yeah Yeah. (laughs) we don't need to go back there So this is Millennial Minesweeper. Um, It's a fun quotes game that we play at the end uh, where I read out some quotes and facts that I've seen recently and we just basically pick them apart and see whether they actually hold any merit. Okay. So I'm intrigued to hear your opinion on these. So the first one is, if they were meant to be in your life, nothing could ever make them leave. If they weren't, then nothing in the world could make them stay. I mean, I just call bullshit on that. I find that really, (laughs) I think it's just that kind of boring grown up part of me that's like deeply unromantic that wants to come in and go like, I think it's probably more complicated than that. I think there's probably lots of things. (laughs) What about you? What do you get from that? (laughs) No, I, I have this thing where someone says, 
if it's meant to be it'll be Emma if it's meant to be it'll be and it fucks me off because I'm like (laughs) how can you say that just like takes all of the power away from me it it, it creates this idea that there's this universe which cares about me the one the tiny little one billionth of well no eight billion whatever (laughs) and it's like yeah but but I have found in the past, especially when it comes to getting over certain relationships, the only thing that gets me through is like, if it's meant to be, it will be. So I kind of have a, a, a catch 22 with it where it really fucks me off, but also finds me a lot of comfort. Do you know, I'm so fine with that though, because I really believe, particularly around things like grief, you know, let's take that. I really believe that actually whatever gets you through the night, but once you've got through the night, it's also really important that you're honest with yourself, you know, in the dawn to say, mm, is there something I need to do differently here? So I'm all for the kind of sending messages out to the universe and telling it what I need. I also need to do something myself. And I think that combination is probably intrapsychically a really potent place to be. Mm. That reminds me of another quote called, uh, I'm such a quote queen. Sorry, it's so lame. Love it. The one, no. <laughs> the one um, where it's um, luck is what happens when hard work meets opportunity. Yeah, I think that's just like, yeah, that is what is meant to be. Because yeah, you, you and it, it's so true, isn't it? Because like, obviously, you know, I'm in an incredibly privileged position, and so I do have an element of of luck that is afforded to me, and I'm really grateful for that. And also, I see it as my responsibility to 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 work hard and make that actually become something so I really like that idea that it's a combination of both because one of the things that drives me nuts is when people say oh you're so lucky Mm. (laughs) like I am lucky and yeah I also you know bust my balls sometimes yeah for sure yeah Mm -hmm. definitely um cool so our next one is oh yeah this is a good one um challenge yourself to find the good and beautiful thing inside everyone it's your job to find it not their job to show you I mean, I would love to meet the person that wrote that. Mark Manson. <laughs> Mark, Mark Manson. Manson. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'm surprised at Mark Manson. I know. Because I, <laughs> I loved his book. Oh, well, mm. both of them. But this this stumped me because, I mean, it's pretty brutal. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. And I don't, I mean, it kind of relates back to people pleasing in a way. Because it's like, why should I have to show you how I'm such a good person? Like, but also, if if someone isn't, if I can't see the good and the beautiful thing in someone straight yeah. away, I'm not going to fucking dig around for it. I've got enough things to be doing, you know. Yeah, and I still, I suppose, I kind of take umbrage with this good and beautiful stuff because I'm like, yes, absolutely, it's your responsibility to show up with a real version of you. That doesn't mean like the whole picture I think you're allowed to have privacy and you're allowed to kind of choose I also think that I want to take responsibility for seeing the real person that's in front of me and that doesn't mean they're always going to be good and beautiful that just means Mm -hmm. that I will see you as you present to me I'm actually somebody who I find a, a real peace in understanding that everybody has really good reasons for what they do that does give me comfort and I think if somebody is behaving badly there's probably a set of good reasons for that it doesn't make it my responsibility I don't think to look for the good and the beauty Mm. I will I will cut them some slack if they want to meet me somewhere authentic Mm. yeah 
Yeah, that's a really nice way to look at it. That's what they sh- the quote should have been. <laughs> we'll just prefix it. Prefix yeah, it. do that. <laughs> okay, and our final one is we can never... Oh, I, I really love this one. I hope you do too. You're going to be like, oh, I fucking hate it. Right, okay. Nah, please. I'd be like, it's rubbish. <laughs> we can never have enough of what we never truly wanted. Oh, I love that one. Mm. Yeah, oh. Nikki Clinch. Nikki Clinch, writing that down. Yeah, we can Nikki never Clinch. have enough of what we never truly wanted. Yeah. It just, I, I know that like, you sat with it, yeah. What do you think? Yeah. Well, it really speaks to me because I suppose so often we can find ourselves chasing substitutes, can't we, and wondering why they don't fill us up. You know, and until we actually know what we really want, we're sort of hoping that the world's going to mind read or just second guess and the likelihood of it being on target is well it's low and yet we can find ourselves really looking to fill ourselves up with stuff that's actually not what we need Mm. I do that all the time (laughs) (laughs) I know and it's also it's always consumed in what we think that the world or society or our family or our friends think that we should want and it's that word should yeah. that comes up a lot yeah. talk about it a lot in this podcast um it's like okay yeah I can aim to to have a house by the time I'm 30 but that's not what I want really deep down I really don't want Absolutely. that I, I want to be yeah. able to fuck off to Canada or Australia when yeah. I want to so yeah. yeah definitely and and if you do end up with the nice big house and the fancy car and that's what you wanted, then great. But yeah. if it's not, it's never going to be enough. No. And back to the whole, you know, social media point. I think that's, that is something that we have to remember is that when we're looking at the outcome of someone's choices on their feed and they're on an amazing holiday and they're looking fantastic and they've mm. worked out and they have this gorgeous person's arms around their waist, and <laughs> they just look like kind of this ideal that, they will have made a set of choices as well mm. to, to be there. And we also know that they won't all have gone in their favour, that there will have been sacrifices made or compromises or, or that it might not look quite as it seems. So we really have to be careful to do exactly what you've said, which is say, sure, if I want the house, I'll do this and I'll give up that. But if I want Canada, I would prefer to, you know, freeze the house plan. Mm. Mm. And that's all okay. It's just accounting. Yeah. When it comes to social media and stuff like that, obviously you now have two children who are probably going to be fairly soon going into that world yeah. as well. Does that, yeah. does that fit? Like, how do you feel about that? It terrifies me. Is it? It yeah. terrifies me. Yeah. It's interesting because I mean, I kind of, I've got my own views and I personally don't choose to post any photos of my children or, or kind of bring them into my social media. I think I am aware that they are going to, they're going to have a relationship with social media. I don't really know what it's going to be yet because I think if you'd asked me 10 years ago, what was social media going to be like? I wouldn't have come up with what it is. So I'm Mm. almost wanting to just kind of wait, watch and find out what's actually, you know, live at the point that they want to kind of enter this world but yeah absolutely they, they talk about it already and what's interesting is my seven-year-old will say post a picture of me post a picture of me really? so she already knows 
what that's about. And she already sees, you know, the people that I follow on Instagram and like, oh, and how many likes did she get? No she way. knows that stuff for sure, you know. Um, and it's a it's a really difficult one because I'm not I'm not experienced. This isn't something this isn't this is changing as an environment for me too. So mm. I am I am really cautious about what that's going to be like. And I think Mm. one of the things I talk to people about is recognizing, you know, okay, so maybe, maybe this generation that we're talking about, they haven't had some of the struggles that an older generation has had in the past in some way, but their set of struggles is just different, you know, because again, I said, I wouldn't go back to my twenties. Oh God, I don't know if I could cope with going back to my teens. That's even yeah yeah That's even scarier and being a teenager with like I mean thankfully when I was a teenager Snapchat and Instagram were just sort of, I think I had it in sixth form uh-huh. I wasn't allowed Facebook till like year 10 so I feel like yeah. it did avoid the the brunt of it but I could not imagine the insecurities I felt it regardless of social media oh, and now to have yes. that especially as there's it's- so many teenagers who are making millions from you know and if you're just you know you're run-of-the-mill like student like yeah yeah wanging out a tiktok yeah and that's the problem isn't it because i suppose the thing for me is actually what i needed as a teenager was freedom to fail and i needed to be able to totally screw things up and it not be written in ink on the internet because Mm. that's the thing that sort of i look back now and think oh i'm really glad that not all of those scrapes were documented yeah that would be sure. bad that would be bad <laughs> i'm hoping they're all just going to come full circle and be like you guys are all fucking stupid why are you using these apps let's let's i'm kind of hunch that. that is what it's gonna be <laughs> exactly. yeah i mean I you like... always go against your um predecessors don't exactly. you so yes. who knows let's yeah. hope and pray <laughs> <laughs> oh emma thank you so much oh, i'm so sad we're out of time me. no it's that been was amazing so lovely, lovely. Thank you. No, thank you. And um, where can people no, find your you. book? No, no, no like seriously, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, my yes, thank the thank you. No, I'm joking. My book is going to be out in paperback actually. So on the 9th of December. So you can buy it on Amazon or Waterstones or any of your local good bookshops. And it's got a whole chapter in there on pleasing on special occasions and Christmas. So if you know anybody who might need a bit of help about people pleasing around special occasions, it might be the one for them. It definitely will. And I can concur that it will change your life. I mean, I'm still a Amazing. people pleaser, but at least now I know that yes. I am. I can do something. You're in recovery. It. Yeah. There yeah. so we go. Oh, thanks, Emma. Mm. Oh, take care. Good to meet you. Thank you for the 1,000th time to Emma Ritterell for coming on the podcast and gracing us with all of your people-pleasing knowledge. Um, If you guys enjoyed the episode, then feel free to leave us a review on iTunes um, and you can follow us at 20notsomething on Instagram as well. Also, if you enjoyed what we were talking about in this episode, I can assure you there is plenty more where that came from in Emma's book, Please Yourself, which is coming out in paperback on the 9th of December. So obviously go and pre-order it right now. (laughs) Thanks again for listening, guys, and I'll see you next week.